Now, you might know this brand, but believe me when I tell you that the woman behind it is, she's just every bit as impressive. Joanna Jensen, founder of Child's Farm. Now, we often hear stories, don't we, that basically businesses are created from when the founders have needed something and it wasn't out there in the world. And so the simplest solution they think of is, well, I'll just create it then. And so when you hear Joanna's story, all coming from the fact that she wasn't able to bathe her own daughter and the terrible bath times that she would endure, it really gives you a sense of the integrity of the woman that created this fantastic business. And then you hear the journey of a founder I find this bit so fascinating, all the hidden stories behind a brand that you think obviously was just successful. But here she is opening up about divorce, losing her home, battling cancer, celebrating the highs, but enduring all of these lows. And here she is sharing it with us so that we might take from it something, a lesson, thicker skin, or just resilience and the requirement of resilience through this life, through building businesses. I have found it so inspiring, even a shot of inspiration, I'd say, a fix of motivation. And I know you're going to feel exactly the same. I hope you enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown Hi, I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not on the High Street, at 28, with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up, and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co. I've learnt so much about taking risks, running a business, and some extraordinary life lessons along the way, and I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realisations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoy this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's conversation of inspiration. Hi, Joanna. I am thrilled to be speaking to you. Of course, you're the founder of Child's Farm, hailed as home of miracle skincare products that have helped thousands of children and parents. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Oh, thank you for having me, Holly. It's going to be such a lovely moment to get to know you because I've really held you in such high regard. I'd love to start with what we hear often about founders who start a business. And I know that the listeners know what I'm going to say here because it's sometimes I feel the best businesses are always based on a need of the entrepreneur. And it comes from just this place of you need to find an effective, in your story, it was an effective and gentle skincare product for your daughter who was suffering from eczema. At that time, and we're, by the way, going to get right into all of this, but at that time, 
you know, when you started to create something, did you know in your hearts that you might have just started a new life path? Um, I kind of did. You know how you sort of, you know, our sixth sense or whatever, you know, our woo-woo sense. As soon as I realised that there was something that I could do to help her, I realised that other people needed this help too. Mm. And yes, my priority was to help Bells, but I'm quite a commercial beast and I tend not to do anything for the hell of it. I tend to do something because it's got purpose behind it, whether that's for a charity or whether that's actually something that's going to make a difference to people. Mm -hmm. And I knew, actually, I remember, do you know, funny enough, I remember talking to my artist, Emma McCall, and right at the beginning, and I said, well, we can turn this into, we can have a cartoon, we can have a telly show, we can do this, we can do that. And she was sort of going, oh, twit. You know, she's obviously off on one. And 18 months later, she said, listen, if you said, told me you could walk on the ceiling without any support, I'd believe you. I sort of knew that about you by just the, the your story, that I think that sometimes we downplay that moment. I, I remember when I was with Sophie starting Not in the High Street and we had no money, like no, no money. We had double coats on because the heating only came on. You know, it, the room only heated up between certain hours. And we, well, I definitely uh, remember putting some of our last budget, which was, you know, hardly anything, into buying all the URLs across the globe. And we'd only been alive four months. And I think... I just knew in my bones that we were onto something. Now, God knows, I'm sure you're the same, how you even begin. And we're going to get into that story because I know you didn't come from any of the expertise that you sort of needed. But there is this sixth sense, isn't there, when you're potentially on the right path? Oh, I agree. And I see it with people all the time. And you just know, and 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 I do genuinely believe that the reason we're successful is we back ourselves and we back our idea 100%. There is not an ounce of doubt in our minds. And it's really hard to explain that to someone who has got a wobble mm. and they're not sure. And, oh, I want to give it a go and I'm not sure. When you know, you know. Yes. It's hard to describe it, but it's just like this thumping heartbeat of brilliance is just saying to you, you go girl. Yeah. I remember Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, it was, I never heard it before, likened it to falling in love. Because when you know, you know, you can't really quite explain it, but it is true. It's absolutely true. I hinted the fact that you didn't come from this background and we're going to talk about your life, but it was a few homemade formulas, um, trial and error, experimenting on your own two daughters. That I think there is that sort of, I don't know, confidence in being really shockingly not good at something, but still persevering. You know, that I think we can get held up, can't we? Uh, certainly as women, we were just talking offline about just women. And if we want parity of businesses started as men, maybe we need to just loosen up a bit potentially and fail more or try things. Yeah, I believe in ourselves more. Believe that we can do it and that if we need it, somebody else needs, needs it. I mean, always do your check it. You know, Google's amazing now. You can check any idea that you ever have before you sort of mortgage the house to it. But you know deep down whether it's the right thing or not. Do the sense check. 
And, and, you know, like you, I registered all my IP all over the world within the first six months. And it was, <laughs> I paid for it all on my credit cards and a really, really understanding IP lawyer who I took two and a half years to pay in full. Right. Yes. He, patience of a saint. <laughs> and actually on those things, same here, we had people in the beginning of our story that, you know, you just have to ask. People are kind if you work with them. You know, they they can be very, very kind if they believe in you. But anyway, we're getting right into the detail. I want to go right back, if that's okay, um, to your childhood. I realise that the origins of your story go right back to when you were very little, growing up on a farm in Hampshire with your sister, and that your mum was a big advocate of homeopathic and natural medication. Um, when you were growing up, you used to make lotions and potions and all the natural ingredients from nature. It sounds like a very happy childhood. I'm imagining you foraging in fields, creating these concoctions. Is that right? It is right. Um, we were also ill quite a lot because <laughs> we ate stuff that we shouldn't eat. <laughs> Um, we were so kind of there that um, I think I got salmonella from our bantam's eggs three times and it took the third time for mum to get rid of them. Oh, you know, we'd have, I mean, we used to spend our lives eating spinach and kale and slugs and whatever animal just happened to be hiding behind the leaf <laughs> when it had been washed. Mum, I have to say, was not the best cook in the world and she was also, I mean, to be fair, not the most natural mother. She was so far ahead of her time when it came to natural, naturally derived, organic food. We had a poster in the kitchen which had all the different food groups and we had to have something from all of those five groups every day. I mean, we were the only people I knew that had brown spaghetti. Yes. And, you know, it, it, she was really out there. But also for her, it was tough because it was... In the early 70s, mum got divorced and nobody got divorced then. Mm. So it was, uh, she was trying to bring us up on her own at the same time as re schooling herself and going from being a nurse to being a health visitor. You know, she wasn't the greatest coper mm -hmm. at that. And we were, to a certain extent, latchkey kids. And I think, I strongly believe, and so does my sister actually, that that's made us the people that we are because we had to be self-reliant from a very, very early age. And mum was ill when I was in my early teens and my sister's a couple of years older than me. Mum was ill for two to three years and uh, we had to do everything. We had to haggle for the oil. She had a little bell she'd ring. Um in her bedroom when she wanted something. And it was quite tough. Mm. I think it was tough for everyone, but we learned how to haggle. We learned how to get the best deal. And we learned how to cook, clean and bottle wash, basically. Yeah. Because we had to. And this idea of her being before her time, did you appreciate it at the time? Did you know that she was right or was she, did you resent it in a way? Do you know, we didn't appreciate the food because she was such a shocking cook. I can imagine brown pasta or yes. kale and slugs. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's hard at the best of times, let alone then it's... Yeah, I know. She didn't believe in using any form of salt or seasoning in her food. And we would, you know, you would have chicken soup for 
Saturday lunch. And if you didn't eat it, you'd have it for Saturday supper and then you'd have it for Sunday lunch. And you would, it kept coming back until you <laughs> ate it. And in the summer, in the summer holidays, my sister and I insisted on eating in the garden. So we could chuck all the food in the bushes. <laughs> I mean, she, I, I mean, this is a woman who used to make pheasant casserole, which she would literally roadkill. Right. And she would put an entire thing of bovril in it. I mean, just use your imagination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was. It was. We lived off tomatoes, really. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot. A lot of tomatoes. A lot of tomatoes. So at at school, then, um, what were you like then? Because I know you loved singing and musical theatre, and you were an outgoing child. Was that because you had been left to your own devices, so you had to find yourself in a way? I think so. And we were, you know, you were never allowed to say you were bored. If you dared say you were bored, you would be told to write a poem, paint a picture. I mean, I wrote my first play with a girlfriend of mine when I was 14 and they put it on. The village players put it on. Wow. I mean, it was it was hysterical. It was in rhyming couplets. And <laughs> I mean, looking back on it now, I mean, God, they were kind. Um, <laughs> you know, I did everything. I had a go at everything. And I think that's because I couldn't sit still. I was a busy mm-hmm. person. And if I enjoyed doing something, I'd give it my all. If I didn't, maths, I would swerve it, Mm -hmm. you know, leave. And so when it came to my sixth form, I was itching to get out there. I was itching to do something. I found it was really restrictive. I went to a school in Dorset and on a Saturday, if you didn't have a match, you weren't allowed to go into Wimborne, which was the nearest town. And I thought that was ridiculous. Mm. I just thought, you know, and I'd say, but but why? I've got nothing on this afternoon. Can't I go into town? I mean, you know, I was the person that was always nicked for smoking and, you know, going into waitress and buying a bottle of gin. You know, I wasn't particular. I didn't cover my tracks very well, but I was very open when I thought something was nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And so I was always pushing. And because mum had... There weren't any real boundaries at home. And, you know, we were told by her, if you want something, just go and do it. Uh, You know, if you want to go and see a friend who lives 30 miles away, well, you've got a bicycle, off you go. Yeah. So we were super self-reliant. Having school being caging you in, in a way. Caging me in, it didn't really work. And I think think when I left, I was, I think I was voted as the person most likely to go to prison. Um, (laughs) That didn't happen. It did not happen. You're absolutely right. I've researched you. It did not happen. It would have been great for the podcast if it had, but it did not happen. But what did happen is that you found that business was in your blood as your grandparents ran a very successful antiques business locally. And it sounds as though they were very passionate about it. And and you were exposed to this beautiful blurred lines between work and pleasure. And I do think that seeing that sort of passion of business firsthand, and I've interviewed other entrepreneurs who literally saw business in their family or their parents were within business, it really gets into your DNA. Um, Do you think it had that impact on you when you approached building your own business? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, you've got, you've hit the nail on the head, Holly. 
I mean, uh, my grandparents, their shop was was next door to their house. And there were, it was just, everything was the same. There were no days off. They were always looking for deals. And, you know, they were the, uh, uh, I mean, it really was like Lovejoy Antiques. They sort of sent containers of brown furniture to San Francisco. It was, it was. So <laughs> they were like, Regency specialists. Regency, right? they were. And um at the time, gosh, it was in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, nobody could afford to live in big houses. So people would just, they would empty this furniture out and they would set fire to it. And my grandmother would run in, chucking buckets of water on things and rescue this furniture. She'd turn up with a horse box and fill it all with furniture. And they became renowned for being these, these amazing, they sold to America, they sold to Australia. This was in their retirement. So Granny had actually set up when my grandfather was a sugar broker in the 40s and then went to war and she had a string of hotels along the South Coast. Wow. I mean, she was an original female entrepreneur. He had nothing to do with the hotels. It was all granny. So we, we, from a very early age, we were just told that if you wanted something, you did it. I flogged. You remember that stuff, FIMO, that you used to make little animals out of? Oh, yeah, I love FIMO. Well, I used to make pigs and I used to make little punk pigs, little, you know, little tiny things, and I'd make them and I'd sell them in their shop. And, you know, all the grannies would come and buy them and give them to their grandchildren. It was an absolute racket. <laughs> and it would say my first jobs were French polishing for them. And, you know, I mean, we were, if we wanted something, you know, you'd sort of say cloth kits was the sort of place to go at the time and liberty to get that sort of skirt that you'd sew the, hem up, the, the seam up on. If we wanted something new, we had to earn the money to pay for mm. it. Mm. And... I think it was the most, you know, compared to some of my friends, it was a little harsh, but my goodness, it stood me in fantastic stead. So I think for me, running a business or working in a business, which, you know, you know, it invades your entire life, mm -hmm. is perfectly normal. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that we tried to do when we started Holly & Co was even change the language, you know, not lifestyle business, not an SME as if, you know, the government was talking about something, how awful. You know, we called, we started using the phrase a good life business, you know, ultimately a business within your life and it's a good life. It's, it's both sides of things. And I think so much of our language hasn't sort of adapted yet to really understanding what it's, what it's like to run a business. I was interested to hear you weren't very good at math because before you, you didn't like it. You didn't actually say you weren't good at it because before any of that, you took your first job before your business um, as an interior designer before starting a career in investment banking in Hong Kong and London. What was that time of your life like? And what did you take from it that you were able to carry forward? Because it must have been a bit of a shift from the countryside going into investment banking in Hong Kong? Oh, God, totally. I mean, the catalyst was, like most things in my life, was my mother. I got my A-level results and they were atrocious. I got two Bs and an N, which I'm not sure the sound, not quite nearly <laughs> there. I've never, never mind. had anyone with an N. I had no. an E. I've got an E oh, in, no. in my business N studies. Trumps your E. My, my, <laughs> okay. Mine was in French. I mean, I was rubbish at French. I have no idea why I did it for A level. And so I, I was interrailing with a girlfriend at the time, and I, and um, mum, I phoned mum. You know, shoving the coins in the machine, 
And she said, you should be ashamed of yourself. These are appalling. Don't bother coming home. Oh, so, you know, which was so normal for our mother. I can't even begin to tell you. So I did go home, packed a bag and went to London because, you know, that's what my mates were doing. They were all having a gap yard. And I thought, well, I'll have a gap yard. <laughs> and I hadn't, I hadn't bothered applying for university because I just didn't, my heart wasn't in it. I wanted to be an actress and, you know, we had loads of actors and actresses in the family and I thought I'm going to tread the boards and be terribly famous. But I was offered a job working at an estate agent's for 10 grand a year and a clapped out jalopy. So I went for that. And actually, that was the best thing I did because I was chomping at the bit to do something. Mm -hmm. I then subsequently set up this interior design business at the age of 21 with absolutely no experience, but grandparents who were antiques dealers. And so I had a good eye for something nice. I mean, really? (laughs) And then I, I I was doing up properties for people who lived in Hong Kong. And we're buying in London because at the time it was very late 80s, early 90s. It was just a, it was a, a golden time for external investment in property in the UK. And so I started this business and on my track, I was going out to Hong Kong all the time and I eventually moved there. And I was sitting there and I was in my boyfriend's flat and I thought, well, what am I going to do when I'm out here? I had dreams of becoming a telepresenter. But I read his book on derivatives trading and I thought, Oh, God, that seems really simple. I'll do that. I mean, I love that. You just picked up a book on derivatives training, as you do, and actually even firstly understood it. And you didn't have math as A-level, no. Oh, no. I was I was English history and no French. So... <laughs> Well, you did that for 14 years in investment banking. You became a mother to two girls, Mimi and Bella. And like a lot of women... This was the turning point in your life. But actually for you, where I think you returned to the sort of golden thread that we were talking about, and this has been running in your life ever since. And I do think about certainly when Not in the High Street started, how I was three months old. And I think that there is this moment for women, especially obviously when we have that that time, that period, maybe the gas is off the accelerator for a second. I I think actually, I've never thought about this, but the only other time I had that was during COVID where uh, there was almost a forced forced moment where you were thinking about things. And maybe that's where other ideas can come and why many women, well, for lots of reasons, they might start their own business. But one would be that you've got that moment to think about things. And your youngest daughter, Bella, was suffering from eczema. So you started to investigate what might help. Might you just now share with us the next part of your story? Yeah, so, well, I, as a child, I'd had eczema too, and mum had treated us naturally, holistically, but for her, it was all about moisturisation. You know, you cannot moisturise your skin enough, so little bells comes along. And chronic eczema, I mean, chronic atopic eczema, I mean, the poor little one was red raw, all the creases of her elbows and her knees, and her poor bottom was a sight to behold. And I was horrified to discover nothing had moved on from when I'd been a child in the 70s. It was all steroid cream and emollients that sat on your skin. And I wasn't prepared to put hydrocortisone on my little baby, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid. Um, I've got a great girlfriend who's in her 50s now who did put hydrocortisone all over her face and it's absolutely thinned it and damaged it beyond repair. Really? And so I thought there's got to be a better way of doing this. 
So I got a whole bunch of natural ingredients and I started creating my own washing products for her because for her, bath time was sheer hell. Yes. I mean, she screamed her head off. You couldn't wash her hair. She had really terrible eczema all in her scalp. And so I thought I've got to do something about it. Started my own products. And then through a friend of a friend, I was introduced to a manufacturer down in Kent. And the reason I warmed to them immediately was because they had worked with the Duchy of Cornwall on their Duchy Originals toiletries range. So they understood about natural, organic ingredients Um, went to them. I said, this is what I want. These are the ingredients I want to use. These are the ingredients I don't want to use. They totally understood. Together, we started making our first collection of five products. And, you know, I wanted them to be fun as well. So Mm. my priority was to have a fabulous product that really, really works, that soothed her skin. But also, you know, when we were little, we had Macy. I was never allowed it, of course, because it would just make me come out in hives. But I thought it has to be fun for people with poorly skin. Yes. So not only did it have to really, really work, it had to smell nice. Mm. So I started using um, fruity essential oils that didn't irritate little one's skin. And then I wanted packaging that was fun, super, super fun. So I used the girls and their ponies and their other pets and animals as the imagery on the bottles. And I wanted everything to be all the colours of the rainbow because I wanted them to have what I hadn't been able to have. Everything I had was brown or blue and white and just basically said, you've got rubbish skin all over it. And I wanted it to be something joyful and fun. I wanted to make bath time fun for people with poorly skin. And I remember giving Bells her first bath. She'd never had a bubble bath. And I gave her her first bath and I poured some stuff in and the bubbles came out and she tentatively got in and she said, oh, mummy, it's not owie. Oh. And honestly, it was, you know, it was that kind of punch the air yes moment. But at the same time, I just thought, okay, we're going to do this. And and I got a load of my friends. I went to her kids' schools. I handed out samples of these products and I gave them all a questionnaire and said, tell me what you really think. And people whose children did have eczema kept coming back to me and saying, this is unbelievable. My child's eczema has completely cleared up. What have you put in this stuff? And that's when I really realised I was onto something. And with the support of people, like an amazing buyer at Waitrose, Andrea, was utterly committed to the products, Mm -hmm. pushed me to go and do clinical trials, which of course I had no money for. I mean, you Mm -hmm. know exactly what it's Mm -hmm. like. I had super glue and spit to pay for things. So, you know, sold my toenail cuttings um, and got another credit card to do those, but it was the best thing I did because it gave us something that completely differentiated us. Yes. We were in a very sleepy dinosaur backroom category anyhow, and we were able to completely revolutionise it by thinking about our end consumer from beginning to end. So it was fun, it smelt good, it didn't hurt their skin. And, you know, as a mum of a child with poorly skin, you just feel it's all your fault. Mm. I'm totally responsible for this. It meant that mums and dads, caregivers could turn around and say, do you know what? Thank the Lord. Yeah, yeah. Little Jemima's going to sleep through the night now. Mm. That's worth everything. And I wanted it to be affordable. Yeah. 
there was no point. I mean, I tried stuff for bells and it was sort of 20, 30 quiz and I wouldn't have used it on the horses. Yeah. Whereas I felt, how much was I prepared to say, you know, this is my, this is my market testing. How much am I prepared to spend on my children? And I thought, four quiz. That's how much I'm prepared to spend on my children. I didn't want it to be a medicine price. I wanted it to be an everyday price. I know there's 99% of life that's unshared with the rest of the world. But every second of every day behind what we post on social media, real life is happening. And in recent years, you'll have had your own experiences of darkness, maybe holding a friend's hand as their tears spilled, alongside the happier milestones of life like birthdays and anniversaries. You would have wanted to show your deep love for a friend, maybe experiencing grief, or to share that small reminder that you know today is the day of their third round of IVF. I'm sure, like me, you'll have your notes in your diary that mark those days we don't celebrate publicly, but that are just as important to us. I also know that you care deeply and want to show this to those closest to you. So do I. And yet, as I looked around at a way to do that through thoughtful gifting, the landscape was bleak. So I've created a place that brings all of these things together, carefully curated and handpicked by me, to offer handcrafted, meaningful finds from the UK's best small businesses, giving you a way to connect with those you love and show that none of us are doing this alone. Not only that, but we're passionate about helping women to be the fullest versions of themselves. So we'll continue to provide inspiration, ideas and advice to help you fly. Head over to holly.co to find out more. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. It's incredible, isn't it, that actually these ideas, these brands are being born from such a pure place. And I think a lot of us who are listening can think of brands that are born from that pure place. And they always come with sort of a halo effect around them that you, you sort of know that there's a founder behind it with a heart and soul and children and all these sorts of things. But the early days, if you didn't have that experience, must have been tough. Like you just said, you know, you couldn't afford the clinical trials all those sorts of things. You had the first manufacturers, but I'm sure that grew. What were some of your growing pains? Did you always think it was going to work or did you have the the ups and downs like all of us? I knew it was going to work. And I know uh, you get this though, Holly. Yes. You just know. And it's not arrogance. It's just, as you say, it's like, you know, you're in love. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is just, you know, the biggest issue for me was cash because I had completely misjudged how much it would cost to manufacture products, how much, you know, containers would be, you know, minimum order quantities, um, all the risks associated with, you know, you couldn't just make a hundred units, you had to make a thousand of everything. Yes. And so suddenly all your cash was tied up in stock. Every time you did anything, it cost money and nothing was coming in, mm -hmm. you know, dribs and drabs. And that was always the thing for me. And at the time when all of that was happening, I was also in a really bad place emotionally because I was in the middle of what transpired to be a really horrible divorce. Mm. 
and was on my own the bulk of the time. Was this right at the beginning of the business? This was right at the beginning. And so when we actually went live in Waitrose and Boots two months before I'd left the family home, I'd had to do all the moving myself in a horse box because I couldn't afford movers. And my ex-husband took me to court I had literally no money. I could not get cash out of the cash machine. There was nothing. Everything I was buying and paying for was on tick. And, you know, we moved into, funny enough, the house we're still in now that was, you know, I got it cheap because it wasn't in particularly good nick. And I was, I just, I don't know. I think there's that something inside you says, I've got to keep going. Tough though, huh? Yeah. And then eventually... Whew. I mean, how many times you must have thought about giving, I mean, how much you could actually cope with. I'm just saying, just, just, just a pause in that conversation. It's quite amazing. How much did you think you could cope with? Did you know you that this... Sometimes our businesses, and I know I speak from personal experience, not necessarily going through what you've been through, as I know your story goes even into darker times, but it, sometimes the, our businesses, our dreams, that vision that you had is a life raft through the choppiest of personal issues that we might go through. But it's at least ours that we can yeah. hold on to. I mean, I was I was failing. I felt I was failing everywhere, but my business, I wasn't failing. And the business had to succeed. It's like I'd gambled everything on black. I mean, you know, our entire lives, mine and the children, were just completely linked to this business in every way. And because everything outside of the business had basically gone to hell in a handbasket. Mm. And so it was the one sparkle of light, of joy. And the more I worked, the less I thought about anything else. Mm -hmm. I think if I'd stopped and taken stock, I mean, I remember that the weekends, occasionally the girls would go and stay with their father, which was utterly heartbreaking because they, at the time, they just didn't want to go. I'm pleased to say the relationship is completely mended now. They didn't want to go and and they would leave and I'd just be in floods of tears and I'd get my poor dogs and I would walk and walk and walk and I would walk for six, seven, eight hours mm. and then come back and all this time be literally in despair. But because I was walking, I was doing something. One foot in front of the other. One foot in front of the other. And, you know, I'd come back. Exhausted. One night. I, well, I couldn't find the car. Um <laughs> <laughs> slightly orcs and no phone signal, no no nothing. One of the dogs had run off after a rabbit and I just thought, oh, well done. This is brilliant. And I'd, I'd literally come home, eventually got home and just went straight to bed and woke up the next morning. And you know when you wake up and you you think it's it's that awful thing after you've broken up broken up with someone and you wake up in the morning and it's it's getting better and then you suddenly remember and there's that heavy it's like someone sitting on your chest and they're wringing your heart but it did get better mm. it did get better and i ended up doing i spent hours doing our family tree as well because you know went on to one of those website things i just thought I want to find reasons to believe in myself. Mm. It, it was just potty, but it was it was 
it kept me going. It's not for everyone. I mean, you know, and I wouldn't advocate doing anything that I did. Yeah. And can I ask at that time, was this the same period of time that you also um, became poorly yourself? Yeah. It all kind of hit. It was, uh, I had a investor pull out in April. I had to be out of our home in May. We'd sold it. Um, we went live with our cartoon and going into Waitrose and Boots in June. All the way through this, I was in quite considerable pain, but I just kept on thinking, oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then it, it, then my ex-husband took me to court in July, um, which was just, the that was just so bizarre and just a hideous time in my life. And that actually, that was, I, I was doing really well I felt until then, and then he started things, staying things in court, mm. and I just started hyperventilating, and I, I sort of completely lost it. Fortunately, my solicitor, who I had no money to pay, my solicitor had actually got a barrister who would work for me for nothing because I'd said I'd do my own, and she said no, you're not, and and I just kept on saying I just really don't feel great. I don't feel great. And in the August, some new investors came on board who were amazing. And I went to a meeting with one of them and I said, do you mind, I was in London, I said, do you mind just dropping me off um, from the taxi here? I've, I've really got to go and see my doctor. And went in to see Peter and within 30 minutes I was being scanned and I had a two kilo tumour. Um, that was just about to burst. And when it was operated on, you know, sort of 24 hours later, they said, you would have just popped a couple of paracetamol and gone back to bed and not woken up. So it was, I was so caught up in the whirlwind of everything. I put my, I almost didn't acknowledge it. I mean, I was sometimes in the evenings, I was going around on my hands and knees. I was in so much pain. Gosh. But I just would, I, do you know, it was like my mother was sitting there saying, oh, for goodness sake, buck up, yeah. get on with this. Yeah. You know, and it was kind of like, yeah, all right, okay, no, it doesn't hurt, it's fine, yeah. it's fine, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And um, and you weren't fine. No, I wasn't fine. <laughs> I just find your strength extraordinary. Ugh. You know, I, I wonder if women have this sort of, I, I don't know, this other sense of that we have got to do this or we it means so much to us, you know, for, for many, many reasons beyond the business and beyond the P&L and beyond everything, that this is almost, you know, for you, it was your identity at the time. Yeah. I know I'm, I very much understand that, that we can have our identity mixed in with the business. So there wasn't a choice in the, you know, for you. It was your saviour in a way going through all of this. But there you are crawling on the floor with a two kilo tumour within your body and you are still going, you're still pushing forward. Do you feel that those um, uh, that strength has stood you in good stead for what you then went on to build? Because I want to then go on to talking about building Child's Farm. But do you think that, that you pulled some good things out of that experience? I think it gave me untold resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think... I look at a lot of the things that have happened in my life and I realise that they were, everything happened for a reason. I also think the other side of this is that I think everyone else has been through what I've been through. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember, that, you know, when you tell people the story and some people are so horrified and you just think, well, but that was normal for me. That was just perfectly normal. You know, mum forgetting to pick me up from school, mm. you know, and having to wait four hours for my sister driving down from Leeds. You know, that was normal. That's what mum did. And I think, I think it's made me... Uh, really conscious of how lucky I am in other ways. And we sit here now both in warm rooms Mm. with natural light and electricity and food in the fridge and the ability to go out to dinner whenever we want and to look at glossy holiday brochures. I think that's really lucky. Mm. And I appreciate every single thing that I have and I'm given. But it has also made me a bit of a taskmaster when I employed people. Right. Because I expected to people to have the same high standards as me. Yes. I expected people to work at the pace that I worked. I expect people to make do things the way that I did it. And that was a massive learning, especially having worked in the city for so many years where actually you are surrounded by incredibly talented people. And it was a bit of a shock to me that, mm. you know, I remember one of my shareholders saying to me, you will be quite surprised when it, you know, if their contract says they finish at five, they will go home at five. And I sort of looked at him and I said, why? Why would you go home at five? You go home when you finished. And he just burst out laughing. Uh, yeah. And he said, yeah, you'll see. You'll, you'll see. see. I mean, if we go back to this part where you're employing people now because of your growth, it's the business basically was experiencing this crazy strong growth but of course um that takes money and i know that you 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 mentioned you know you you sold um i think you mentioned your toenail clippings it was actually you sold your jewelry you took on credit cards you let out rooms in your home before you raised several rounds of money and in 2017 18 your baby moisturizer was hailed as a miracle cream. And you had all this press coverage was rolling in and you were basically struggling to produce enough stock to meet demand because the demand was catastrophically incredible. How did you navigate scaling? Because you spoke about employing people, which obviously meant that your business was growing. And it's a problem that's a good problem, isn't it? You know, there's many, many people, that's what they want. They want to scale their businesses. But this almost all happened at once. How how did you, did you know you needed to take, well, you talked about investment, but you know, that's a big step, isn't it? To take on external people into your business. Yeah, all of of this is because you suddenly have even more responsibility and you have to have better communications. But I think I was extremely fortunate. I managed to hire some sensational people straight away. My head of sales, Andrew Rayner, was just a joy. My office manager, Jane, suddenly we had people that got it. When it was going nuts, I would drive and go and see our suppliers and say, help us. And the ones that we stuck with were the ones that said, congratulations, this is brilliant. We will do anything. We'll put on shifts over the weekend. We'll work nights. Mm. We just want to be part of your success. The ones that we left at the wayside were sort of ones that said, yeah, we can probably do that order in about six months. Yeah. And so you... You did it in six days. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers, treacle. And so we ended up 
finding out who we were. But I think I look, I get really enthusiastic when I'm onto something. And we were having we made it fun. I mean, it was, there was one stage where I suddenly realized we were going to run out of stock. And I was in Cornwall and I had to go in a pouring rain in the middle of the night to go and phone Andrew. And Andrew said to me, where have you been? And I said, oh, I've got no signal. And he said, we need to shut the website down. We we cannot. It's going to take us eight weeks to supply all these orders. And I've got to supply boots and I've got to supply Tesco's. And I said, well, well, we'll just do it. And I have to say, I mean, you know, a lot of people who sell through retail will have horror stories about their dealings with these big retail companies. We were treated superbly. Right. Boots were amazing because, of course, you know, they were putting in an order that was sort of six, seven hundred thousand pounds and our terms were 90 days. And we said, we just can't do this. And they said, we'll pay the moment we get the order. Amazing. As soon as the stock arrives, we will pay you. And, you know, Boots have had a hard rap over the years, but my God, they they really, really looked after us and they stood by us. And they, you know, not forgetting as well, they'd been in the doldrums with, you know, baby and child was their lifeblood. And they were, when we started, they were number four in the UK. Well, once they got us, they were number one again. So it was a partnership and it was a really, really good partnership. And how amazing that you can say that, right? That you not only are you building your own company, but you help Boots go from number four to number one. And now, of course, Child's Farm is the number one baby and child's toiletries brand in the UK, outselling Johnson & Johnson. And it is just one of those stories that you can't quite believe. And maybe some people listening have been using your products, you know, on their not quite understanding that this was literally coming from your child not being able to get in the bath. Talking about your family and uh, the, you know, when you're talking about your mother and your mother is coming up in this story quite a bit. Um, I don't think she might have felt guilt from what you're talking to me about. But a lot of women building businesses are held back by a lot, societal, but also within ourselves. It's the inner voice of not only that we can't do something, but how we're damaging our children by doing this or how selfish we are to, and I'm definitely talking my own experience, you know, (laughs) definitely why was the business as important as my child? Not really, really, but it was. It was was as much time was being spent, more time was being spent on the business than with my child. And, you know, he was three months old when I started. He's 19 now. And I started all over again. You know, what what is that relationship with guilt and those things that hold us back in your experience? I think think we're still expected to be mothers, parents, Mm. before we're everything else. And, And we're more capable than that, far more capable than that. And I am so proud that my children have seen what I've done. And I've tried to be the best mother I can to them. I mean, there have been times where I have missed things and I've been absolutely livid. And I'm so thrilled now I've got the time to just really annoy them by turning up to everything. <laughs> but, but 
what I have shown them is what it's like to be a female in business. And I don't think they are frightened of doing anything in their lives. I think, I know I have been a fantastic example to them. And I know by what they talk about and what they want to do in their lives, they're not thinking they're being held back for anything. The only thing that they think is going to hold them back is the fact that maybe they're just not very good at something. Mm. But they're both incredibly passionate. They both have got ideas to be hugely successful. And uh, go them. Go them. And I just can't wait to do something with one or both of them and and do it as a kind of partnership and and have fun together and get them to pick my brains and you know be told yet again oh mummy you've no idea I've got okay uh, no absolutely no right. none, none 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 at all <laughs> that's me but I, I I do you know I it's it's really interesting having seen how we were brought up by mum there are certain things you know my girls are pretty independent. Um, and they get stuff done, but my God, I love them. And I show them every day how much I love them and tell them every day how much I love them. I cannot, I I, I mean, I don't think my mother has ever turned around to me and said, I love you. Mm. It's amazing, isn't it, that you you can be eaten up by that. You know, if you talk about, think about what you've shared with us, so beautifully shared with us, and so many people will be resonating with your words as well, that you could have been eaten up by that. You could have been a victim. Mm. You know, you, you a lot of the things that you've described here, you could have played that card, maybe rightfully so for a while, maybe got caught in that victimhood trap. But it's you've done the opposite. You've done the opposite. Yeah, but- to what end? You know, being a victim's boring, isn't it? It's really dull. Poor me. Mm. Oh, come on. Poor me is somebody in Ukraine. But you can, you can then be safe, right? Poor yeah. me and you're safe, aren't you, from the world? But are you? You're just, you, you know, you're cosseting yourself in self-pity. I, I look, again, I'm, it just, you know, I've got a great friend who lives in Ukraine and I look at her and I think, you know, you go, girl, because mm. you are, I mean, she's highly intelligent, super, super successful. She's lost absolutely everything and her resilience is is amazing. And you look at hotspots around the world now, you know, families in my village who are working six, seven jobs a night, who are, you know, stacking shelves overnight, they just get on with it. And I mm. maybe it is a terribly British trait. I hope we don't lose it mm. because, you know... COVID has made us a little bit wishy-washy, mm, I think, yeah. and, and our backbones are not as robust as they should be. But I think this pick yourself up, brush yourself down, is what makes this such a nation of successful entrepreneurs. I really do. What a great, great moment there, just to even just to remember that and just to think about that. I want to just change the subject, if I may, because part of what I think makes Charles Farm so special are the values that run at the very heart of that brand and the determination to that make a difference in families' lives. And you've been doing this with obviously countless children and parents up and down the country. But in 2020, you launched Farmology, a range of adult body care. You've also donated £1 million worth of products 
to the NHS frontline workers during COVID. And I know that Child's Farm has been a leader in sustainability as well as sales from reducing plastic to introducing refills. And am I right in saying that um, it became a B Corp, which Holly & Co is, in, in 2022? Tell us about that sustainability journey. And it must have been blinking difficult, by the way, just in what you did you know, the very nature of the product that you had when you started to being given a B Corp certification, the changes you must have made in the business must have been enormous. Well, uh, do you know, we didn't have to change anything. Wow. Because we, I had, uh, you know, uh, I have my hippie mother to thank for this. It was there from the start. It was there from the start. And and mum's legacy is really this. Congratulations. Because... We were told never waste, never throw away, reuse, recycle. And so from the very beginning, you know, you get those things of little sachets of samples of things. I said, no way, no way. I made little bottles so they could be reused and you could top them up from your bigger bottles. We were the first to introduce 30% PCR plastic, so post-consumer recycled plastic, back in, oh, I think that was 2018, and very quickly moved to 100% post-consumer recycled plastic, which we discovered from a fantastic organisation, Ocean Prevented Plastic. Ours comes from Indonesia, and it's actually a social economic enterprise, so people actually can earn a living by picking up the plastic bottles. They come back to Scotland, they're shredded, and they become our bottles again. And they're sent by the sea, so it's about as efficient as it gets. We know where every ingredient has come from, and we've known that since the get-go. And we have, I mean, I've been obsessed by making it the most sustainable business it could be. We were Uh, you know, everything that we could be, we were years before everybody else. And the B Corp just took nearly two years to come through because of course of COVID. Mm. So we were, we were on it from the very beginning. And I feel very strongly as a parent, if I am making products, which are for children, they have got to be legacy products for them. Yes. I don't want our products to be a cause of any upset for them in their future lives. And yes, it's not ideal still using plastic. Yes, there are a million things we want to change. But the reality is we are best in class and have been throughout our journey and will continue to be because that's what matters to us. It's incredible, by the way, your thinking. And and I'm so glad mum had something to do with that positive side to your, your world. Because, you know, when you think about consumers and the fact they're just so much more conscious of of everything and that they, you know, we, we've had a whole series and still do, don't we, of greenwashing. And I recently read a statistic um, stating that 61% of consumers say that sustainability is more important to them now than it was, let's say, two years ago. And how we've got to think of our brands that, as you said, there you were helping children. Uh, you You couldn't have been, but people did and people do throw plastic in the landfill at exactly the same time for, you know, the planet that they're going to grow up on. Do you think that this is just going to continue to be part of brand development and that we will now expect this from a brand? Oh, we have to. And and we as consumers have to be vocal about not accepting 
anything less than best in class. And I think, you know, B Corp itself is is a fantastic way of recognising brands that have gone that extra mile. But even then, I don't think that's good enough. I think we need legislation in this country that prevents people manufacturing or creating products that are not as sustainable as they can be. Mm. And there needs to be. I mean, moving net zero back, I mean, I get why it's been done, but it breaks my heart. And I just worry we're too late for a lot of things, but that doesn't mean we should stop. And my what I say to everyone is, you know, you don't have to be like me and have about 20 bins in your kitchen and recycle absolutely everything. But if you just took it upon yourself to take one thing that you use a month and say, right, this month we're going to recycle that as much as we can, and then something else the next month, the difference is profound. Mm. So one small change can make a enormous difference yeah to our waste and how we waste things everything from putting your bread in the freezer slice it put it in the freezer and take it when you need it it's better for you as well Every week, I hand this part of the podcast over to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. Dell Technologies are committed to empowering all small business owners with the tools and the technology to connect, collaborate, and lift each other up through Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, or DWEN for short. Launched in 2009, DWEN is an online community designed to connect women entrepreneurs globally, offering clever learning resources and access to the kind of technology that really supports business growth. Since its inception, DWEN has positively impacted over 91,000 women in business. With multiple events every month, Dwen gives women access to Dell Tech Advisors as well as the chance to engage with women at all stages of their business journey for free. There's nothing to lose and everything to gain. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Things did change for you, though, didn't they, enormously in 2022 because you sold part of your business. And after all of those years of hard graft, blood, sweat, tears, crawling on the floor, it must have feel, felt like a very new era for you. And you're a huge advocate for women in business. And I know that you're working uh, with female-founded brands by means of mentorship and investment. Tell me about this new chapter and why that has become important to you? Well, the heat's off now. You know, I've done it. I've still got a stake in Child's Farm. I'm still involved in a sort of ambassadorial role. And I've learned so much over my journey. I say that I things that took me six months to learn, I can share in six minutes. Mm. And through our mutual friend, Sahar mm. Hashimi, yes. I have met a bunch of the most extraordinary women, female founders in this country from all walks of life, from sort of gin to G-strings. Mm -hmm. And wow, we have got some real talent in this country. So under this umbrella of Buy Women Build, which supports and brings female founders together. I'm mentoring some brands. As you say, I've invested, I've now invested in nine female founded brands. Amazing. And which is so exciting. Is it so funny to be on the other 
side of the desk, so to speak. Totally, totally. And it's and I love it. I love the fact that, you know, we'll have a brainstorm and I'm not the one that then has to do the work. You know, hurrah! You know, and I'll go, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Off you go. And cool, that's fab. And I just love seeing the innovation. I love seeing the excitement. And I can enjoy it vicariously through others now. Mm. And also for my girls, my goodness, I mean, my eldest Mimi, who's now nearly 18, she did work experience this summer with three of these brands. And that, that was incredible incredible for her and it all made sense Mm. it all made sense for her and and it all made sense for me and I thought this is just I'm doing things I love absolutely love now Mm. and I would encourage all of your listeners to hop onto the buywomenbuilt.com website and check out a myriad of fabulous female-founded brands because not all of us can invest in female-founded brands no. who, as you know, Holly, wow. they get about 2% of the venture capital funding in this country, but we can all, as consumers, choose to purchase from them. Your statistics of Holly and Co are just supporting that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you looked at, I think a couple of years ago, the the stat was one pence out of every pound went to female founded businesses from VCs. And I think we can, as a sisterhood of women, support one another. You know, it's about voting with our money. Mm. Um, My plight is women and small businesses. You're now and Sahar's, you know, energy is going into women. And I think we all just have this ability to just shift as CEOs of the household. We can shift our disposable income into supporting women and who are growing companies, supporting the economy, supporting the planet, supporting the young. And it's very, very easy to do. We just got to find businesses that genuinely are either run by women or support women. Because, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a bit biased here, but I do believe in women doing the right thing. Totally. And if you have a woman woman leader, I do believe that they are doing the right thing. And and certainly this interview is a complete showcase of that. Because if you think about what you were doing, where it started, where it's gone, and now after all of that, you're going to give all your advice to women. And my goodness, how lucky they are. I could talk to you for hours. Just absolutely oh, fascinating. You. I end all of these interviews with an analogy that and certainly yours has been, that this business journey of ours is a complete roller coaster. I'm wondering what you would say in your cart where your stomach is turning and you're right at the bottom of that roller coaster. What would be that moment? That was an investor in 2014 pulling out four days before. How disgusting. The money was due to hit the bank account. I mean... And I was... I had two weeks left in my home before I had to move. How shocking. It was It was badly done and he didn't even telephone me. He got someone else to telephone me. Four days to go. Weak, weak, weak man. Four days to go. And I know from many, many rounds of investment that four days before the money goes in, 
all the paperwork has been done. Like mm. you're far, far down the line. You're basically a second from the finish line. So this isn't that there was, you know, this, that's, an, that's a shocking behaviour. And, you know, I, I got the phone call. I got on a train and I went to London and I knocked on the door and I was... Of him? It, yeah, Good at the office. You. I was shaking. I'd got on the train and the, the guard had said, listen, first class is empty, come and sit there. And he said, I, I've got you some water. Are you all right? And I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk. I was so... I was so... Because it wasn't just that. It was, you know, the divorce. It was the everything. Yes. And I got there and he said, oh, I'll do a conference call with you to one of the retailers that I was going into. And we got this call up and running. And the first thing he said was, right, I've just pulled out of investing in Joanna's business and she's skint, so I don't think she can make this listing. Had I had a knife in my hand at that moment? Oh, my God. Goodness. Just honestly, can I say it was these things, you know, in hindsight, it was the best thing that ever happened. He pulled out. Did not want to walk up the business aisle with him. No, not at all. He was not what my business needed. No way. And that's what I would say to anyone. Look at that investor. Look them in the eye. Mm. Do you want to be stuck in a lift with them? Mm. Yeah. You know, do they speak your language? Do they breathe? Do they... Do you feel warm and fuzzy? Have a chemistry meeting mm. and another and another and another. Mm. Don't get it wrong. And on the flip of this, I don't know the gentleman's name, but I have a few people in my world where, you know, I definitely could never share a lift with them uh, ever again. But they do, you know, they, they're, they're fuel in your rocket. Oh, yes. To put two fingers up, aren't they? You know, I think we always need, you know, I nearly branded. It's a very, very rare story and I haven't actually told anyone else this, but I won't mention the names. I actually thought about um, buying a Porterloo company and branding, there's two gentlemen, branding the name of the, these two gentlemen on each Porterloo and actually having their faces on the toilet paper and actually just hiring out to festivals. <laughs> it just came to me. And I just thought, you know what? Thank you very much, gentlemen, because you are literally the fuel now that will keep me going and I will prove you wrong. It's like the Calvin and Hobbes list of people that have really pissed me off. <laughs> Maybe us women entrepreneurs who've been screwed over a little bit by people, we could all invest in this Portaloo um, company and we could all have one toilet. Oh, my goodness. Each. Do you know what I mean? And that's, oh, yes. I mean, that would be great. Very cathartic, wouldn't it? Now, tell me, conversely, apart from us buying the Portaloo um, company, what would be the greatest high on that roller coaster? It was, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, when the gorgeous Paige Sweeney shared photographs of her daughter, Evie Ray's very, very poorly hands before she started using Child's Farm and afterwards because that Facebook post changed everything mm. for us. So not only did we help little Evie Ray, but she just turned a small rural business into wow. a national yeah. doer, mover, shaker, yeah. bubbly, bubbly fantastic. Took boots from number four to number one. I mean, that's quite an amazing thing. Well, this has just been a gorgeous meeting and I just have loved every single second. But you know what I'm going to ask you now is 
very kindly, very kindly, you've taken time out of your busy schedule to write a letter to your younger self, which I don't know what it's going to hold. But I just wanted to thank you so much, Joanna, for sharing it with us today. Well, thank you, Holly. Darling girl, well done. I'm so very proud of you for everything that you've done and achieved and for not ending up in prison. And I know how much that sentence will mean to you because there isn't a lot of praise in our home lives, so let me clap you on the back and give you a big hurrah. You are the most resilient, driven and capable person, so when the road gets rough, know that you will succeed. There will be some terribly tough times, but you won't let them define you or hold you back. They will help to drive you forward, so embrace them and take joy in tweaking their noses when you beat them. You remain very self-aware and very self-critical. Lighten up on yourself because you bring so much more to the party than you ever give yourself credit for. And learn to take praise with grace. I know how hard that is, the temptation being to walk away or shut your ears because we never had any praise growing up. We don't know how to accept it. Please learn to treasure praise like a newborn lamb or the first snowdrops of spring. It's okay to be told you're good at something and it's okay for it to give you a little glow. Conversely, it will benefit you to learn what it takes to get the best out of people. Because you do everything at pace, decision-making is easy for you and you can see a hole in a plan at a thousand paces. Others may need more time to catch up, so an unintended consequence of your drive is that it can be disempowering. So pause and listen. Get a coach as soon as you can. They will help you manage your frustrations effectively and help you to understand the tools you need to cultivate to help you grow, to understand others better and to charge your batteries. You need to have time to yourself and you need to tell people this so they can get the best out of you and that you can give the best of yourself. So never be without a horse. They are your spirit animal and your instrument of inner peace and will help you process things. Your best ideas will come when you're on a horse and they continue to help you to be mentally and physically tougher. You remain fiercely loyal throughout your life and always stand up for the underdog. Remember to put yourself first sometimes. Always giving your last fiver to the man on the street means that you won't have it when you need it. And you need to look after yourself. If your body doesn't feel right, it's time to tell someone. There are no prizes for suffering in silence. When the menopause descends on you, you'll have itchy skin and hot flushes at 40 and think it's the washing powder. Seek out a female menopause specialist immediately and get on HRT. This will prevent you losing 10 years of your life to chronic self-doubt and unhappiness. Laughing is good, so make sure you watch, listen or do something silly every day that gives you a real belly laugh and makes you snort like a pig. And when your children come along, yes, those are coming too and will change your life in the most brilliantly way imaginable, get them to muck about too. Your jokes will only get worse because you can never remember the punchline, so write them down. My must-have beauty tip is never to have a perm and don't ever use sun in on your hair. Please, please heed these important warnings. Finally, when you least expect it, you will find someone who has a tower of reciprocated love for you. They will understand you better than you understand yourself. 
and you will find a deep and loving relationship with them that you didn't think possible. Jonathan and your gorgeous children will complete you. P.S. Be aware, your children are little versions of you, so you'd better watch out. <laughs> I didn't know that you'd, um, you'd found love, and that makes me so happy. I, I listened to your story and I thought, gosh, what a lot you've gone through. And I didn't know when I'm talking to you now whether there was someone in your life. And I'm I'm really, really happy that there is someone in your life that looks after you now. Oh, bless you. It's, it, you deserve that and more. Thank you. I asked Jonathan to read this before I sent it. And he, he said, um, oh, I love the bit at the end. I assume it's about me. <laughs> So I wrote to him and I said, oh, Lord, no, sorry, that's Steve. (laughs) (laughs) I have an imaginary boyfriend called Steve. So every time he goes away, I say, oh, I better phone Steve. Just check he's free. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. You would have helped so many people. I can't even begin to tell you by being so open and vulnerable, one of the superpowers I think of women. And so I bless you for your time and your vulnerability with us. And um, I can't wait to maybe meet you in person. Oh, hurrah to that. Thank you, Holly. And honestly, bravo on your lovely new business. Thank you. I'm going to be on it straight after this. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love. Mm